0: Back it's Tuesday noon, another Tuesday, another noon, and uh, we are thrilled again to be in sunny Seattle. Isn't that amazing? You know, it was raining in Portland. Really? Well, yeah. Fall hit, right? It starts raining, it gets soggy and gray.
1: We come up to Seattle, it's gorgeous. I have to tell you though, do tell. We are getting uh, our fall is lasting pretty good now, and we're getting some good sun. And they're talking about how it's going to be a casual winter, and some of this might be due to global warming, of course, and so. uh, I was, I kind of liking the sun, so I have a confession. So over the weekend, I bought a tank of gas for my truck that gets like seven miles a gallon, and I started up, and I just let it run in the driveway until I ran. Oh, my off. goodness. Well, Why would you say that? Well, dude, because I want the sun. So <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm contributing to the quality of, of life in, in Oregon, because nobody wants the rain. So I, you know, 50, 60 bucks to get a little more sun. I'm thinking I'm, I'm good. You're
2: done. doing your part. I
1: do. I'm doing my <laughs> part to increase property value and, and make Oregon a great state. You're about as wrong as wrong can <laughs> be.
2: Exactly.
0: That's great. God. You know what's
1: even worse is you guys. You guys looked at me and, and you you almost believed me. That's that's what's wrong. Yeah, I'll yeah, tell you what's wrong. What's that wrong. say let about me, you? Let me, you <laughs> let me tell you what's wrong really quickly. I, uh, I've i been working on it. I
0: talked a little while I several shows ago, about Hittail, this wonderful company that will tell you this little code snippet, what people are searching for when they go to your website. And... Um, and so I installed this uh, uh, several months ago and we've had it running now and so I can see through our organic search results what people are searching for and how they end up on our website and I thought it would be interesting oh, for, for our, our show for to see our it. show right. yeah when they hit up on tuesday12.com and and uh, let's see the vast majority of them are searching for Mary Bradbury Jones uh, I'm sitting here looking for the looking through the the uh, tail here and it's not just um Mary Bradbury Jones it's Mary Bradbury Jones it's um uh, Mary Bradbury Jones all written together it's uh but then our number 1 is Mary Bradbury look at so. that congratulations Mary you <laughs> are the shining star oh, of Tuesday gosh. Noon. So one of them, You know, I've been working hard. every day. we're not even on there.
1: Hot Mary Bradbury
0: is what it is. I've been
2: working hard every day. I come in and search on my name. Doing your
1: fantastic. ego searching every day. Yeah, we're not even on the list. Pete, no. Jamie, no. Mary, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, we have oh, another uh, wonderfully
1: interesting topic
0: today. It seems like we derailed before we even started. <laughs> and we did. You know, yeah, we, we seem to be going down this trend of talking about globalization, internationalization. Well, it's certainly I, I, timely, isn't it? Is it? Timely. With
1: all the things that are going on in the world, I, I, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, South Korea, North Korea, I mean, Truly, everything. Yeah. And, and so we have another global expert today. Uh, his name is Shabir Karim, an international trade expert, import-export expert, I would say. Uh,
3: the, No,
1: maybe. More so than the rest of us. Oh,
3: well, I have some expertise. I consider myself... uh,
1: University of Phoenix faculty member as well? What kind of things do you teach for us?
3: I teach uh, international business uh, at the MBL uh, program. I also teach global business strategies, management 448 at the undergraduate level. And then uh, a few social sciences here and there.
1: What's your what's your country or area of expertise in the world? Are you all over, or Asia, or?
3: Uh, I I think my expertise, uh, you know, if I if I um, because of my travels and my business, and I read up a great deal, would be China and India. Mm-hmm. Okay. Excellent. So,
2: Excellent. So
1: tell us a little bit about what you're doing, your business and, and background, how you got here at this
3: point. And okay. Uh, I, I was born in Pakistan. Uh, my parents had moved to Pakistan from India during the partition. Uh, you know, they left their home in India, had to make the trek to Pakistan start all over again. I attended an American Catholic school in Pakistan, and then we had a civil war. And during the civil war, once again, we made a move. We moved from Pakistan to Bangladesh. And uh, you know, Bangladesh was um, the early years were very difficult, and so we started to make a move. And we, our family, eventually moved to England and the United States. And I had applied to two universities in the USA. One was Clark University in Massachusetts and University of Oregon. University of Oregon gave me a tuition scholarship and at that time that made all the difference. So I ended up going to University of Oregon, uh, eventually got my master's in international studies And uh, then it was a logical move. At that time, uh, the Oregon economy wasn't all that great. It was centered on forest products. Uh, Nike was just beginning. Uh, Tektronics used to hire a lot of people, so I figured that it made more sense for me to move to a place like Seattle. I came to Seattle, um, started uh, getting involved with an organization called the Washington Council for International Trade, the World Trade Club, and the Washington Department of Commerce. And I noticed that there was an opportunity that uh, USAID, the United States Agency for International Development, uh, had procurement open for small businesses. So I started a small company, and I basically would bid on projects that would not require a tremendous amount of capital. And
0: manufacturing projects, or what, what sorts of projects? I'm not familiar with how USAID uh, well, works in this capacity.
3: USAID basically um, will transfer goods and services to certain countries, mm-hmm. and, and they're basically geared towards international development, and so it's open for bidding. So what I would do is I would look at the uh, circulars and see what were the opportunities. And if I saw a situation where uh, there was a project that required 10 different manufactured goods to be packaged together, then I saw an opening. And my first project was supplying audio equipment for a radio station in the Dominican Republic. So I started calling everybody. Uh, I looked at the Thomas Register. Uh, it was a bit of a tedious exercise, but then since I had no overhead, I had the edge. So I put it together and basically uh, took care of the shipping and then received a check from uh, USAID. And that gave me the uh, understanding of how the bureaucracy works. And the bureaucracy is very different from the private sector. Uh, document You have to be on top of documentation. It has to conform to basically U.S. government uh, standards. And uh, I, then I started looking for uh, other opportunities like... Um, supplying computers to uh, for a project in India and again this was you know we're talking about the 19 uh, the late 1980s where it was difficult to import computers into India mm-hmm. because India was basically run like a socialist uh democracy and if you would bring in an, uh, if you would bring import a computer into the uh into India the duty customs duty could be almost ninety five percent
1: oh my gosh,
3: so for instance, if Whoa. the p c at that time cost two thousand dollars, add another ninety five percent to it so the when the Indian government would seek uh, economic assistance it'd say, oh, we need computers or we need uh, things that um, you know will not have to go through that duty process. And India was extremely far-sighted that it saw that there was, uh, India had a pool of design engineers. I mean, historically, after the Soviet Union, the largest number of design engineers that would graduate would be in India. And unemployment was very high for, uh, for India. So they made a logical move, which was to go basically into the IT industry. And now we're seeing the results. I mean, it's become a formidable, uh, how would I call it? Uh, they're, they're, they are a software superpower, mm-hmm. no question about it.
1: Certainly we've outsourced a lot of things <laughs> to them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. The uh, import-export that you do now then, so out of the USAID, I, are you doing private sector stuff what are you
3: i have moved away from USAID projects uh, when the cold war ended uh, the uh, there wasn't so much opportunities anymore and the USAID had had taken a calculated decision that they would work more with nonprofit organizations or relief organizations for specific projects So I figured that, okay, it was time to now, uh, you know, revamp, uh, look at uh, other ways of doing business. So what I started doing was I would work with companies in the Northwest that did not have import managers, but were interested in finding uh, consumer products that uh, and not work with an intermediary. So Naturally, they,
0: you're now talking about smaller companies.
3: That's right? correct. Small
0: to mid-sized organizations. Great. That's correct.
1: So I'm a small company. I want to import some kind of product or even have a product manufactured to my specifications. I don't know where to start, so I would come to you. Exactly.
3: That? Exactly. That's how it started. Sometimes I would do a cold call. I would uh, uh, call up certain companies where I saw that you know, they would be recipient to what I had to say and I started off by in the private sector by looking into the apparel industry and there were a lot of small companies uh, and when I say small companies they had less than 100 employees that were interested in import working directly with the manufacturer offshore and I knew uh, countries in Asia I knew India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka so whatever if it had to do with textiles or apparel, it would not be very difficult for me to put up a program together.
1: Isn't the markup in in apparel just huge here in the United States? Absolutely. And so I go to Nordstrom's or whatever and yeah. I pay eighty bucks for a shirt and Absolutely. I'm thinking, yeah, they paid five. Uh,
3: well, let's take it Tell me the truth. I yeah, wanna no, know. I wanna know how bad I am right? getting ripped off. <laughs> Well, you're not getting ripped off. You're getting a quality product. <laughs> oh but you're you're going through so many levels. Yeah. Uh, you're it's the cachet of uh, having the Nordstrom uh,
1: The Nordstrom <laughs> engine.
3: Yes. yes. No, oh, I stuff. I, you know. I understand well, all the overhead and all
1: that. But but really, is that a five dollar shirt? <laughs> from the manufacturer. <laughs> well, I, I want to know. No, I, oh, I understand. Well, understand uh, your brand makes it.
3: The shirt that he's currently wearing. Well, that's a cheap thing.
1: That's Pete. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> Travel Smith, baby. This is a nice
0: okay, shirt. This
3: is a very nice <laughs> shirt. The fab. If this was manufactured in China, the FOB cost would be approximately four dollars and fifty cents. That is in China. So now, FOB stands for free on board. Can you explain yeah. what that concept is.
0: for The concept
3: customers? is that will be the uh, cost of the good before it leaves uh, the port, before okay. it leaves China. Okay. Okay. Then you add the shipping cost. Then you add insurance, and then you have the customs duty. Now, uh, we have. Uh, the customs duty has not gone away. But at, in the old days, uh, 10 years ago, you also had a quota price because the U.S. Had, uh, under, had basically had a quota on different categories. And if they saw that, for instance, China can basically be the world's uh, apparel manufacturer, the world's, not just the United States. So how do you control it? And if you let a country like China or India and Pakistan, they could basically fulfill all of America's apparel and textile needs, but it would put the textile business in the American South. Mm -hmm. They'd have to close shop completely. So therefore you had quotas. And the quotas, so now quotas were traded on the marketplace. So let's say Mr. Lee has a factory, and he has, a quota, he has the quota for exporting one million uh, dress shirts to the United States, but he only has order for 500,000 dress shirts. So what he will do is he will sell his quota on the marketplace. Somebody else who doesn't have the quota will want to buy it and has the order.
0: So now they had a one million dollar quote or one million item, and now they have one point five.
3: They can well, buy
0: an extra five hundred thousand.
3: Well, they they continue to they would continue to make money because they would sell the quota. Yeah. And so basically, what Mr. Lee is doing is he's in the business of manufacturing money. Mm-hmm. He has Fine. the right to export. He exports a product. When you've taken, uh, when he finds out he doesn't have the order basically sells his right to somebody else.
1: Now, we don't have quotas like we used to. No. Free trade, right? We
3: uh, don't have quotas anymore. Uh, however, when the China became, uh, just a quick historical backdrop, China became a member of the World Trade Organization a couple of years ago. As soon as China became a member, the export of apparel to the United States was so extraordinary that within six months, they had jumped from, uh, they were basically, their exports had increased by 60% in six months.
2: Wow. Wow.
3: To To, to, the United States. To the United States. Well, that's why we
1: had the trade imbalance, right? And
3: yeah. yeah. And it is extremely difficult to compete price-wise and the Chinese industry tends to be vertically integrated in one province you have the uh, apparel uh, that you will procure same province is going to provide the buttons the same provide uh, province will provide the workers and uh, you know you 've got absolute and you are hiring contract workers, so therefore they can Afford to? They'll make a profit, not a hefty profit, but they do business in volume. So now we have uh, reimposed. Uh, we have, you know, we've got a ceiling on what kind of things we will uh, we will allow China to export. Like for instance, we have a ceiling on bras. Apparently, uh, they exported so much. That the American South, the American bra manufacturers in the South, said, you know, enough. Uh, we will go out of business. Well, so
1: or if Steiner wouldn't really support them anyways. I mean,
2: so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, so. burn the bra. Um, so, in your opinion, what do you think? Was is having quotas a good thing, a bad thing?
3: It depends from whose point of view. Let's talk about from yours. Right? Yeah. From my point of view, uh, I think quotas, um, well, it really did not affect my business that much.
0: Either way, you're doing business, you're yes. just helping and the transactions. transactions.
3: Yes, and, and since then, I've also kind of moved away from the apparel Sure. I've, I've adapted to newer realities, and I've kind of moved away from uh, the apparel industry. Uh, I've been doing more durable products, consumer products, but mostly my energies are now in China. I think, uh, I mean, this is not an exaggeration. It has become the world's workshop. So if it's uh, everything from electronics to that paper turkey that you see in Thanksgiving On the table. All- <laughs>
2: <laughs> little, oh, it's, it's, wow. Well, isn't that a bit of cultural
3: yeah. irony? Yes, not
2: it? So, okay, so you've spent a lot of time in China. You were telling us before the show you've been there over 40 times. Yes. yes. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about China? I know that, of course, you know, a question that everybody has over here, we asked uh, a, a guest what, on another yeah. show the same question was, you know, are there really kids working in these factories? What are the factory conditions like? And I guess a broader question in general, what do you see as, a, as really America's biggest misconception about China?
3: Okay, well um, you know you're the, you've already alluded to the problem of child labor so let me let me address that. Uh, I think we forget I think we forget that China is still a communist country and since it is a, comm- it is a communist country If you walked over to uh, a Chinese businessman and if you asked him what is your uh, philosophy, what's your ideology, he would say I'm a market socialist, which means he believes in the free market, but he also likes certain things from old-school socialism. So in, in a sense, they are... Uh, in a sense, they are a lot like the euro socialists. They have a lot more in common with them. But when it comes to money, they are um, you know they are extremely aggressive, they are more capitalistic than any country on the planet. So this has evolved, but in the situation of child labor. There is very little incidence of child labor in China because of the fact that it is a communist country. Children are expected to go to school, and they will go to school because the government has... uh, It's a command economy. The government says that you've got to go to school. So therefore, you cannot get kids who are 10 years old or 11 years old to come and work in factories sewing buttons because
0: they're busy with compulsory education until absolutely until how old, 15, 18?
3: Uh, you, it is, uh, education in China is basically free up to the university level. But now some private universities have come up, so, and like all private universities, if you're going to pay for quality education, then you will have to pay. And so the middle class, the middle class are looking for newer and newer opportunities. Uh, the middle class want their kids not to go to any humdrum uh, elementary school, but they want their kids to go to a private school. Where And private schools, the biggest market that I've seen in China, because I always see, I you normally go to Shanghai, and if you go to Shanghai, you will see that it's, it has started to resemble Hong Kong because there are so many young American Europeans and uh, Japanese people there. Mm-hmm. And there are a large number of people from England, Australia, the USA, and Canada who are teaching English as a foreign language mm-hmm. because they, you know, what they've seen is because of the Cultural Revolution, And because it was isolated from the world community, that they had not been able to master English. So now they're in a very quick program to do all that. So uh, again, this is a long answer to the question about uh, child labor. You won't see child labor in uh, China. And the workers are primarily from the rural areas. They move to the big cities on the East Coast which are uh, Be- you know, Beijing, Nanjing, Shanghai, Hangzhou, and then going down to Guangzhou. So the east coast of China is very well developed. And the rural folks will move there because they're going to make more money. Because in the interior of China, people are still making $2 a day, roughly, roughly mm-hmm. around $2 a day. Wow. But if you look at a country like Bangladesh, yes, you will see, uh, and I've gone to many factories there, you will see children who are 10 years old, 11 years old, working or helping out in the apparel industry. Helping out? In the sense that most of the people that work in the apparel industry happen to be women. They have also come from the rural areas to the big cities. So the
2: kids just come with
3: them. The kids come with them because they don't have a daycare center, mm-hmm. and when they're coming with them, you know, they're they're helping out basically. You can't run a sophisticated uh, zuki machine, uh, which is the state of the art machine exported by Japan to apparel factories all over the world. It is. I would not be able to use something like that. It is extremely... So there is a myth about exploitation of child labor. I think uh, there there are some cases, but I wouldn't say that um, it is absolutely blatant that every factory... But, you know, there will be cases where, you know, for instance, if you have sewn a button on a shirt, what I'll see is, uh, you know, somebody's got a child... The child's got a small pair of scissors. Obviously, they're working in the apparel factory uh, to make money because mm-hmm. these folks don't have the economic means, and this is employment for them. And they'll cut the thread on the uh, on the button. I mean, uh, sometimes it's a little bit heartbreaking to see those conditions, mm-hmm. but
1: is it a sweatshop, though? Uh, so well, I
0: think yes, it sweatshop. Yes, it
3: is. A, it is a sweatshop.
0: The sweatshop it gets to a different issue too, which is not yes. just children. No, it's,
1: it's yeah, the if exploitation we, so of labor I'm, in general. I'm imagining these women that are there, and they're bringing their kids, and then I'm imagining the sweaty guy, you know, making them work for sixteen hours yeah, with yeah, one yeah, break yeah, yeah, and yeah. no air conditioning yes. and all that kind of stuff. Yes. So, is that reality?
3: That is the absolute reality in most in the uh, apparel trade. That is the reality. And the reality is actually, it's, it's a bit frightening uh, when you see some of the conditions. You, you know, it, it, uh, I, I'm very fond of fiction, and I grew up, again, going back to the American Catholic school, being exposed to Charles Dickens. So you see Dickensian times when you uh, look at these factories. And you see the poverty. Why are these people... Working here, one, they've moved from uh, the rural areas to find jobs, and uh, sometimes it's uh, the you know sometimes the women have to work to support their family, and the kids have to work to support their parents. So it's it's that kind of a cycle. Now, sometimes we apply Western standards and we say. Oh, you know, these sweatshop industries, uh, this should be completely closed. Now, the fact of the matter is a lot of these governments are uh, not creating jobs in their country because they are uh, expending their resources on things that really doesn't help uh, international development. Uh, the private sector sometimes, yeah, you know, the private sector is uh, motivated by greed. But if you close these, you know, if we go, if we uh, aggressively start a campaign and say, you know, uh, these sweatshops should close. Well, one is then the American consumer will have to pay twice as much if you if conditions improved, uh, and then number two where uh, there would be the unemployment in a lot of these countries would be absolutely horrendous. A lot of those young women would probably end up in prostitution Mm -hmm. because there's no going back to the rural areas. Uh, We've seen that situation in many countries in Southeast Asia. Uh, And remember, all the countries in Southeast Asia that are now formidable economic powerhouses like uh, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam, basically all started in the sweatshop industry because uh, an apparel industry, according to economists, is considered a light investment industry, which means you can do this with less than a million dollars and they started in the apparel industry then they started assembling sports shoes for the country for the companies like Nike and Reebok and then they moved to manufacturing and then software engineering so that's the natural progression of things india was uh, a textile powerhouse it still has a formidable textile powerhouse. But the Indian government was far more enlightened because they had invested money and resources in the uh, education sector. And most of the resources went into primary, secondary level. And we can see now that they're the beneficiary of uh, outsourcing.
0: It's interesting to look at that. I mean, you look at your experience in Asia and you look at what, what when you say, you know, can American consumers would have to pay twice as much for a given product. I mean, one of the questions that I find so interesting is one from a show we had several weeks ago, where we had some, you know, some folks who are independent entrepreneurs trying to start a new business, uh, and they needed software developers. And so they went to the United States, around the United States, to different development houses, and they got quotes to develop a website that ranged from sixty to $80,000. They could not afford that. As American entrepreneurs, they couldn't afford that. So they went to India and Romania and had the same website done for $2,500. Have we priced ourselves out of entrepreneurial innovation for small businesses?
3: Uh, Well, um, no, I don't think we've priced ourselves out. I I, I think what has happened is, um, you know, if you read Tom Friedman's book, uh, "The World is Flat," uh, you know basically what has happened is that with globalization, with the uh, you know with the internet, you can now send work overseas. So a place like uh, India, for instance, is 13 hours ahead of Seattle time. So you go to work, you've got a problem, you send the work overseas. Um, and by the time you come next day, you've got some results. And then you work on it. You say, all, oh, you need to further uh, change the configuration here. So that works. And the other thing that we have to keep in mind is an IT worker in India from a good school starts his beginning salary. It's probably not going to be more than $1,200 a month. So and twelve hundred dollars a month is nothing to sneeze at in India. If you uh, if you were making two thousand or three thousand, let's say twenty five hundred dollars a month.
0: That's roughly equivalent here. Twenty five hundred a month here to uh,
3: twenty five hundred in India, you'd be considered rich. You'd be considered like you've got a very good job. That's the equivalent of. Uh, somebody working in Microsoft making uh, six or seven thousand dollars a month. So wow. that's uh, and less
0: than an economic perspective. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. So you know, uh, a lot of these folks are very happy, and uh, the companies that are sending the business are extremely happy right. because they can get their work done. At probably twenty-five to thirty percent of the cost in the United States. So
2: here's the real question: When they they went to the company here in the U.S. that told them forty to sixty grand, how much you would have bet that if they'd gotten that job, they would have outsourced that out?
1: They, they might have, have.
0: <laughs> yeah, pieces of it, <laughs> pieces to of it R- be. R- right. Romania yeah. or whatever. Well, and, and so it gets back to this bigger question, which is: are, do, and, and it's, We've it's, talked about it before. Question. We don't really make as much of a big deal about this as, as maybe we did during the '80s and sort of the reagan administration and and following with this whole made in america concept uh, do we make too big of a deal about it is that is made in america irrelevant anymore anymore. well no no, that's not true (laughs) (laughs) unless you're in the south no that's not true if you're
1: in manufacturing in the united states or you're producing steel or whatever you absolutely care because it's your job it's your well no i agree
2: but the average american doesn't care what the average american cares about is the cheapest price Yes, because right? we're consumers. which is why Walmart is where they are.
1: Yes, exactly.
2: But Despite their the, the argument,
1: But the argument becomes right. that because we outsource everything, now we have nothing left here, so we're not really producing anything. Therefore, as a country, we are eroding our own wealth and, and whatnot. I, I don't necessarily buy that argument, but certainly short-term, there is a price to be paid for outsourcing for the people who are those manufacturers.
3: Okay. Uh, again, uh, let's look at history the time when Amer- in the 1950s america was the world's workshop american products the 50s i mean there, there will never be a time like that again the 50s america basically manufactured 90% of capital goods that were exported all around the world
0: right it was it was wood and steel everything. and everything yes. and plastics
3: consumer electronics agriculture. major appliances uh, agriculture, we still uh, continue to be uh, formidable, but we have we 're no longer a manufacturing nation, and we have become extremely specialized. We are involved in technology uh, and the reason why technology companies will always flourish in the USA is because of venture capital available and uh, we are into avionics we're into aerospace. We are still you know we continue to be do very well in the automotive industry in agriculture, but basic humdrum manufacturing like apparel, shoes, baseball caps, uh, the lap the case luggage those things.
2: Rubber-made trash cans. R-
3: Rubber-made trash cans. It doesn't make sense to manufacture it in the U.S. We're
1: well, becoming certainly more skilled. It's more intellectual property than it's yes. ever been before. Yes. So then the economic worry is you have the haves and have-nots. We have a you whole have, set of the
2: population that's now left out.
1: Right, and they're in the service industry. And then you yes. have the haves who tend to be the more educated, and so the middle class gets to shrinking, and that's that's the challenge. So it goes back to education being really important for us.
2: But, mm-hmm. Yeah but just makes you wonder when will be the point that we've I, I don't know that we we've outsourced so much and we've i just worry well, about yeah. that I mean, with, we, you, with, with, you with a shrinking
0: it. middle class and a and sort of a service and a and a uh, sort of executive class then what you have left is this is a, a group that's out there to farm out business to other countries and how long can that last you know oh. uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I tend to always go down the do- gloom and doom. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> no I, but, but uh, I, 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 I agree so funny with you. It's
2: so outside your personality. <laughs> it is.
1: Yeah, the quiet one in the back of the room that raises their hand. Yeah, <laughs> but the world is flat, and this goes back to Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations. Yeah. This is exactly what we're talking about, where yeah. these nations go through these cycles, and and we had this point in the '50s where we were everything, and and then we started outsourcing it, and now these other economies are starting to come up, and so those sweatshops won't last forever because as their middle class earns money, they will start demanding better conditions, and over time, exactly. it starts evening out.
0: Well, and when you say that we're what's left here is this sort of intellectual capital, we're the, the sort of company headquarters to all this outsourced manufacturing, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, in these developing nations, in India, where you have the vast majority of people who are doing the work, that is an enormous resource for new business opportunity. I mean, those guys are entrepreneurs themselves. They're the same guys who were at Microsoft 20 years ago and, and Apple 20 years ago who have started these wonderful companies. Well, you know, we're having serious questions about our education system right now. Serious questions about our, our elementary education system right now. Is our future as bright as these cottage nations that we've essentially spawned?
1: Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. So, all right, but, you uh, win. I, 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 but I, I tell agree. Me why? Tell me why. Yeah. I, why? Go ahead. I agree with him and I'll tell you why because what uh ima- the largest marketplace in the world continues to be the United States. When I For it, how long? It'll right. continue It'll For uh, China. It'll, China, India, the the, the
0: just the hey, sheer population know, outnumbers us so much. No,
3: but the 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 thing is uh, we consume so much, and we will continue to consume, but now there are, of course, other middle-class markets that have emerged, like China and India. That is correct. And But remember, marketing is the name of the game in the U.S. And when I talk to Indian IT professional, professionals in the United States, I ask them, you know, what, what do you want your children to do? What do you want them to do? And they said, you know, I always encourage them don't go into IT, go into either project management or go into the finance industry. And so I'm seeing the new generation of Indian kids that were born in the US, they're all they're all they're interested in either finance or project management, but not so much that they want to be an IT geek. Hmm. So there is a shift here. And uh, the United States is probably the most important, being the leading economic power, will continue to be a magnet for talent coming to the United States and will also be uh, the leader of outsourcing work, basic manufacturing or tedious IT work or back office work to countries that can do it at the fraction of the cost,
2: right? But what's going to happen when eventually, it, instead, we'll just bypass the company in the U.S. that outsources it and go directly to the company in India? I think that's kind of where you were, which is well, they yeah, will start to create new this. business and pretty Overtime. soon shove America yeah, sure. out of the way.
1: Yeah, over time. But we have to understand we are so big. And, and you look at our economy. You know, we grow at three four percent a year. Germany's happy if they get one percent. They think that's the coolest thing since sliced bread. I mean, and Steve Forbes, and I'll have to look this up. But he, he, I saw him speak just the other day, and he gave a stat that was pretty incredible. and I'll screw it up, but essentially, he looked a nice at nice setup though. You know, yeah. but he looked at the growth of the U.S. economy over the last several years and talked about how just the growth of our economy alone over the last couple of years is X number larger than say China's entire economy. In talking about, we are huge. And so, yeah, we are struggling in some areas and our markets are shifting, but we are, without a doubt, the biggest kid on the block and, and will remain to be for quite some time. But that doesn't mean some sectors aren't going to le- get left out and we're going to have some haves and have-nots, and that's that's going to be our challenge.
0: Well, IT of 20
1: years ago is
0: is 40 years ago's
1: auto industry. You yes, know? it I is. Mean, it's like, yeah. yes. So Shabir and I are on the right, and you guys, as always, are on the left. <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you didn't say the wrong. Yeah. Well, I, it I goes I without the saying. There's a parallel lips. there. It's like when you look up synonyms, <laughs> and, and you're out in a word or something, left, wrong. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. yeah. That's good.
0: You're like a political mad lib today. That's good. Keep that going. <laughs> this has been very interesting. Yes. Uh, Shabir, as, as always, you, uh, we, we get to talk about these. Oh. The $4.50 shirt. How much did you pay? It was a gift. <laughs> no, I, honestly, it, honestly, I knew it, it was. My wife got it for me, and but I picked it out. It, it was fifty-eight bucks. Fifty-eight I mean, bucks. 58 but it doesn't wrinkle. I mean, I could just, I could pour <laughs> oh a red wine on the yes, shirt, and it would just do, bounce off. It bounces products, off, but. and it would soak right into your. Cheap shirt. So, who, that you're okay, it's not so. A cheap shirt. If this well, was four
2: is. 50, $4.50 in China, and so probably the person who made it, what I'm going to say, got paid 10 cents. I mean, if you're thinking they make two bucks a day, and it probably took, what, 20 minutes to make uh, that shirt or something.
3: Uh, so, well, people in the apparel industry uh, work in the apparel industry because they're making maybe $5. Oh, so or they make more? Okay. $5 mm-hmm. or $10 a day. But they have to crank out a lot of shirts.
2: So, we know, though, that we had shipping costs, we have some customs costs. So and then TravelSmith Smith charged fifty. So who's really in the end making the most profit?
1: The the, the middle. Corporation. <laughs> the, corporation. Well, the corporation. Yeah. See, the retailer so... wants wants fifty points. So at fifty eight, they're looking at that cost them twenty or something right. like that. Right. And and so they got so it they over here. They made the most absolutely so maybe the middleman. That's sh- what they paid in marketing. So Shabir got it over here for twelve. <laughs> he uh-huh. sold it Shabir got it for twelve. He sold it to those guys for twenty. They marked it up to fifty-eight. Yes,
3: and at sale time, it'll come down to.
1: Yeah, and you think you're getting a good deal to maybe at forty, and they 40. still made good. Yeah, exactly. And you're thinking, "Woo, what a deal! I only paid forty. Wow. Yeah, or fifty-eight. It's that's
2: why bring. you go to Nordstrom <laughs> Rack, <laughs> yes, yes, and yes, not yes. Nordstrom.
1: So you're on
0: your
3: way to China. Yes, on
0: the twenty fifth, twenty eighth, on
3: the October twenty eighth. And and what are you going to be doing there? I will be uh, working with uh, a factory in uh, the middle of China, and they specialize in art glass. And I have an order for um, a wine stopper, and it looks like a Murano art glass. Mm. And this, this company does an extremely good job. I've looked at some of their products, and I'm very... Happy that there are so many wineries in Washington oh, and Oregon. Welcome. We don't yeah, even have home, to well, worry home. about Napa Valley. Right. So um, a lot of these products are selling in their stores. You know, every, every winery has a gift shop, and they're selling for about thirty-six dollars or you know thirty dollars. So again, same principle as the shirt. I know how much art glass costs in China. So I've got one project, and then I've got wow. another project in electronics. Yeah. That's cool. right. So oh, This is if, uh, wonderful. If I'm Shabir. a small
1: company and I want to have some help with importing or exporting or manufacturing, how can I get a hold of you? Could you help? Oh, I, of course.
3: Yeah. I'm uh, always looking for new business. Uh, you would send me an email.
1: Okay. And what is that?
3: Uh, Kareem at msn.com.
1: So that's S H uh, A B B I R, should be your Karim, K A R I M? That's correct. At MSN.com. And we'll put it on the website too, we is that right, Pete? Yeah, we'll definitely okay. yeah. there.
3: Or you can call me on my telephone number and. Uh, okay, and what would that be? That would be 206 283 0152.
1: Okay, very good. And that's uh, Washington State Time on the Pacific Coast, is that right? Yes. Yeah. That's correct. Okay. Excellent.
0: I believe that covers it for the week. Thank you very much, uh, Shabir. Thank Thank you you for being with us. Thank you, Seattle, for a lovely sunny day. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. As good as a single episode is, think about how great it would be if you had access to dozens right there. And soon we'll have dozens, so that'll be at your fingertips. Sweet. Subscribe. Subscribe. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Until next week. This has been Tuesday Noon. We're out.